There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome once again to the Crash MotoGP podcast. I am indeed your host, Harry Benjamin. Keith Hewan and Pete McLaren are here as ever to provide hot air and some wonderful insight too. On the show this week, though, we'll be discussing the updated calendar after a few changes and cancellations sadly have occurred in the last week. The curious case of Danny Pedrosa and his temptations of a wildcard entry with KTM. Last year, Moto2 rider Marco Bezzecchi was hotly tipped for a MotoGP ride. He even turned down Aprilia but what's next for him and is Ralph Fernandez deal to MotoGP as good as done plus the day has arrived Pete myself and your questions dear listener that you have sent in will be thrown at the man the myth the legend former British champion and BT sport commentator Keith Hewin as we unpick just a little bit about how Keith's career got started and some of his personal highlights from years gone by by. I think that sounds like a decent lineup. But before we talk all things Keith Ewan, let's get Keith Ewan to talk all things MotoGP. And it's a bit of a sad start, isn't it, with the 2021 calendar update? Because Australia has been confirmed as uh, cancelled for this year once again. The round in Phillip Island due to the ongoing travel complications, obviously, in logistics with the pandemic. So it's it's bad news, isn't it? Especially, you know, we've got a Miller and Gardner doing well in, in MotoGP and Moto2. So it's, it's a shame, isn't it, to lose Australia again? Well, the best one on the track on the calendar as far as tracks concerned and riders are concerned. So missing out on Australia is, is huge, absolutely massive. But it's not going to be the only one, I don't think. I mean, Thailand, Malaysia, they are... Obviously, Japan's already gone and they're having ongoing issues with the Olympics and the like out there as well. So I think Asia in general, it's all very well us lot being jabbed to the limit as we are. I've had my two jabs and I'm perfectly good for anything. I've got my certificate that says I could travel, but actually nobody wants us in their country anyway. Yeah. So um, we're in a, in a difficult position anyway. You might be This might be the great country as far as all the jabs are concerned and we're reasonably immune to it all. But but everywhere else in the world is a bit behind us. And of course, this is a global inoculation that's necessary to get people moving um you know the the world superbike round was at donington park last weekend and uh, the fact of the matter is i was going to go up on the friday and then when i saw the amount of paperwork that i was going to have to fill out and the tests i was going to have to take just for those two or three hours of business on a friday afternoon i didn't bother in the end i met people in the hotel outside of the track but when you've got a global bubble that's moving as one you know a, a group of 3,000 odd people that are going from country to country, you have to guarantee to the country you're going to that that bubble is secure. And that's the big issue. It's making sure that that bubble doesn't actually spread the disease into a country that's not yet inoculated up to the required percentage. I mean, it's a nightmare. 
Thailand is so far behind in, in their inoculations, I can't see us going to Thailand, to be honest. There's bits of Thailand. I read this only, only this morning that Koh Samui is now open to international travel. Um, but for how long is the question? I mean, Koh Samui is obviously a little island, island off Thailand, so therefore um, maybe they can contain it within that island, and that's why they've opened it. Phuket has opened a little bit. Likewise, that's only got a bridge onto the mainland of Thailand as well. So we are going to see some more cancellations yet. Um, how many rounds can we have at Portimao in a year? <laughs> Well, this is the thing, isn't it, Pete? We've got uh, Portimao rejoining again with the Algarve Grand Prix. That's going to be the penultimate race of the season, I suppose, all being well. But you can't really predict what's going to be the penultimate race of the season at this stage. But provisionally, it is. We've already had a race there in April, dominated by Quartararo, Banyaya Mir, also on the podium. So I suppose they might be quite happy to go back there. But it's another round in, in Portimao. But I suppose at the end of the day, we've got, we've got to fill up the calendar somehow. That's it, Harry, isn't it? And, you know, as you've been saying, this is an update. It's certainly not the final calendar. You know, there will be more changes. As Keith says, that the Asian races, the flyaways are the ones that are really hanging in the balance. And you've got to imagine if one goes, you know, suddenly the other one doesn't become viable. Malaysia's been moved to the weekend after Burrybrum. But, but if one of them goes, do you then go all that way for one race? You know, maybe you could do a back-to-back doubleheader, but again, you know. And the same with Kota. You know, Kota at the moment is a kind of standalone event. You'd have to think, I mean, they're doing very well with vaccination, so that's that's good news on that front. But surely that should probably be a back-to-back event, you know, to make it worthwhile if Argentina isn't going to come back. Argentina is still postponed, not yet officially cancelled. But, you know, so we're going to see a lot more updates. I mean, I guess the good news is it looks like they will be able to, by adding these other events, let's say other races at, at tracks we've already been to, or doubling up, if you like, that they'll be able to keep somewhere near the the intended 18 or 19 rounds. So that that at least looks like it'll be possible. Dorna dipping in their deep pockets again. But there are some teams that might actually be glad of a few rounds off, judging by the uh, engine lists that we've all been studying over the last little while. With the loss of the... Uh, the obviously, there's restricted motors. Those with concessions have got a few, few extra opportunities, perhaps. But there are some that have used up motors. When you looked at it recently, Peter, I think you've done a bit of a study on this just recently. Um, there's a few that have been withdrawn already out of the allocation. Yeah, it was quite surprising, wasn't it? That, you know, Alex Rins, we thought, you know, when would his bad luck end? We, we now see that he's lost two engines out of seven already. Withdrawn, meaning when Keith says withdrawn, that those aren't coming back. Those are engines that have been taken out and, you know, he can't use them again. Um, so, it's yeah, it's quite unusual to to lose. Well, his teammate hasn't lost any, so that says it all. And it seems like... I thought maybe it was some sort of crash damage or something like that, but it seems that wasn't the case. The, the the one engine we saw stop in practice in Germany, but that one had already been used kind of in session since Qatar, so not, not a big issue. But the other one had only been used, really, at, at one event before it was being withdrawn. Don't know quite exactly what went on, but it seems like it was something outside of the engine had a fault and it ended up <laughs> doing some damage inside the engine. Yeah, that's the rider throwing it through gravel. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the thing, though, as well as these, obviously, engine changes and, and uh, classifications as well. You know, it's a 19-race calendar currently as it stands with these changes that have come in place into the last year. That's still a pretty full calendar. And you've got to surely take into account in the last few years, you know, across different motorsports, calendars have been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Double headers, triple headers. It's going to take a toll mentally and physically on all the riders and the engineers and, and the team personnel that are going round. So surely they're, they're not going to be too disheartened at losing these rounds, not not only for the, the you know the, these engine issues, but also just for their own sanity. 
Well, they had a big break in the middle of the season um, this year, so it's going to be intensive towards the end of it. And of course, mm. that's the, it's the not knowing. Data is everything in Grand Prix and in any kind of motorsport. So that preparation for what's coming next is critical. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that nobody likes. Nobody likes the variable, perhaps going to a track that they hadn't really prepped for, hadn't really sorted the data out on. So the unknown is not fun from a motorsports team point of view, that's for sure. Well, Daniel Coyle has asked, hello again, guys. Uh, Keith, do you think historic tracks such as Monza and Spa-Francorchamps should once again be on the calendar? Oh, Paul Ricard as well, he quickly adds in. Dorna should help pay for mods to do so, no? And remember, it's works, not factory. Nobody wants to go to Paul Ricard unless they're on some kind of hallucinogenic drug to look at that paint job that's around there. I mean, who the hell would want to ride around that and send you insane? <laughs> Ricard, obviously, is a great old track. Um, you know, Spa, of course, everybody wants to go to Spa. Uh, riders that have not ridden on Spa or competitively at Spa that have done the classic meetings there have loved every minute of it. So Spa would be a great one. And Blanchimont and places, you know, corners like Blanchimont that used to be just, you know, three foot from the edge of the road was the barrier and then a cliff off into the trees. Um, they've made modifications there, but still not good enough for Grand Prix. There's no way we're going back to Spa or any of these type races, unfortunately, as much as I would campaign for it because they are so dangerous. Um, from, from a motorcycle point of view, you, you can't get the runoff that you need at corners like Blanchimont, you know, you know, I lost a mate of mine there, we, uh, Kevin Retham. Just no room to to once once you fall at a place like that, you know, you've got no room to to run off, to roll over in the gravel. It's bad enough as it is, let alone when you've got a metal barrier or a set of trees to roll into. So, as much as we love the classics, um, you're going to have to stick with um, what we've got. I think um, can't say better than that. I'd love to see a Grand Prix at Brands Hatch, yeah. full circuit at Brands Hatch. Oh, that would be just Alton Park. Can you imagine? Alton Park. <laughs> We're spoiled for choice in the UK. You'd have to shut Cheshire. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Daniel, for sending in your question. But yeah, it looks like it's going to be at the moment provisionally a 19 race calendar currently finishing up with uh, Valencia in November. But, you know, we... We're still very much not out of this uh, this global pandemic, so expect more changes to happen uh, throughout the season, but hopefully not too many. Um, now, things are hotting up a little bit around Danny Pedrosa and KTM. He has said it could be interesting to enter Moto a MotoGP race as a wild card for KTM to enhance his test riding work. Pete, you've been uh, hearing about this a lot, haven't you? It looks like, you know, he's definitely being entered for at least one race, either at the upcoming Austrian rounds or maybe Misano. So what's the latest on that you can tell us? Well, the first thing is that, you know, Pedroza has sort of turned down these opportunities for, for many years. I mean, KTM would have been happy to offer him a, a wildcard. He's been doing this, this testing and wildcard job since he, reti he retired at the end of 2018, basically, having been a Honda rider for all of his career. And he then went to KTM and he, he's been happy doing test riding. And KTM have always said, if you ever want a wildcard, it's there. And, he, and he's never been interested until now. So that's that in itself is, you know, what, why now? What's changed? Yeah. Um, now, as, as you say there, you know, what he's saying is that it will take the test riding to the next level, that KTM have lost concessions, you know, so there is testing restrictions with the race riders have gone up a notch, if you like. 
And so, you know, he'd be able to do race distances, a real Grand Prix comparison between new parts and maybe the parts they've got now. You know, is it just that? Who knows? But it, it sounds like what we do know is that KTM have applied for wildcards. Now, that doesn't mean that they'll actually use them. So that's the other thing. So, um, but just that in itself, and the fact that Pedroza is coming out and saying he's interesting is is certainly, you know, th that in itself is a big change from his, his, let's say, attitude in the past towards it. The first thing I do whenever the entry list comes out for each every Grand Prix, when ERTA, the International Racing Association, send out that email to, to us privileged few, or privileged many as it is now, you straight away look down for wildcards and substitutes to see who's coming in, because that's... It's an exciting part of the entry. I miss wildcards. I think wildcards are fantastic. They add a dimension. You know, when you used to have a Japanese rider that would come in that you'd never heard of and he'd, he'd be fast mm -hmm. and he'd be on a motorcycle. And you see, the thing I love about it is, you know, back in the day, you could run what you br You could bring something exotic. You know, you, you suddenly turn up with a motorbike that was completely different from all the other factory bikes. Now, that's what I call a proper wildcard. And we should have them back. But difficult times. And so um, that's why everything has been shut down a little bit. Maybe we'll see that again in the future. But uh, particularly with Moto3 and Moto2, wildcards in Moto3 and Moto2, that's how you bring in to, to have a look at a guy that's that's doing the business in his national championship. Let's have him in there. Let's bring him in. And uh, I think wildcards are a very important part of it. I miss that, the pro proliferation, if you like, of, uh, of names that I've never heard of. And then we're all scratching around, looking them up, trying to work out what championships they've won in some far offshore somewhere. It's... It's not quite like that nowadays because we know most of them, but it is still quite exciting to see somebody new. But particularly, I think, if 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 we if they were allowed again to to run that fully trick, brand spanking new, completely different, forget about concessions for all the, the the normal factory riders, but if they were allowed to bring that full test bed to the track, you know whether they didn't score any points or something along those lines, I don't know how you deal with it, but. Wouldn't it be exciting? Yeah. Well, actually, I'm I'm sure a lot of people would love to see Pedrosa, you know, back on and racing in a Grand Prix. But as you say, should a wild card be reserved for for a new driver to, to try someone out from Moto Two and Moto Three? Is it a bit, you know, I don't want unfair is the wrong word. Obviously, Pedrosa has been developing that bike and and he is the the man developing it, so he would learn a lot. But should it be actually more reserved for people who are new and sort of trying to show their cards in Moto GP? Not too many people who can ride a MotoGP bike um, uh, anywhere in the world. So I think it's a situation where I think with MotoGP particularly, you're a bit restricted to people that are, are good on a MotoGP bike, like Danny Pedrosa, Cal Crutchlow, uh, originally Jorge Lorenzo and people like that. Otherwise, you know, it could turn out into a massive mess. Do, do you remember Christophe Ponson when he came, the French guy, came along to, to Le Mans and got oh, absolutely slammed by everybody in sight? Um, and I remember feeling really diabolically sorry for him because when I looked at his his times, I remember thinking, that ain't bad, really, considering he just slung his leg over it for the first time. And, uh, you know, there's some footballers that are feeling like Ponson did at the moment, I think. Speaking of Moto2 and Moto3 riders, though, as you uh, mentioned there, Keith, with your wildcard talk, Raul Fernandez. A lot of talk about him yet again. It's been a spectacular start for his Moto2 career. He made an immediate impact, didn't he, with second on the grid and debut in Qatar, followed by a podium next time out and then victory at round three. It took him 42 races to notch up two wins in Moto3, but only five starts to reach the same tally in moto 2 you can read that whole article on crash.net as well he now has three wins six podiums from nine rounds 
There's been a lot of rumors about whether he will make the move up to MotoGP, especially with Tech 3 KTM. There's a couple of other rumors floating about as well, but hearings, hearing on the ground, it looks like actually that deal may be done. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, you find some riders are little bike riders and some riders are big bike riders. Some can make the transition up the ladder to the fastest tackle of the most exotic kit, and others can't. And that's always been the way over the years. Some riders have been restricted through size or whatever it might be to uh, the smaller bikes. And then you get a guy like Rael, the, the harder it gets, the faster it gets, the more intense it becomes, more technically difficult it becomes with the big bikes. He's rising to the occasion. We've seen riders like that throughout the, throughout the ages. And uh, he really looks like he's going to be one of them. Mm. Pete, you're the one who texted me this morning saying uh, you definitely think the deal is done there. So what's what's changed in the last you know week or so? Because he's been saying, hasn't he, that I'm, I'm going to stay in Moto2. That's probably what's going to happen. That's right. These rumours are nothing new. You know, we, we've spoken about it before. He's certainly been linked for the last couple of races before the summer break with a potential move. But he's always kind of played it down, said he expected to stay in Moto2. But he also said that there would be this meeting during the summer break with KTM and 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 Tectoire have also been clear that the summer break would be when this, this other ride is decided. And yet, you know, what I'm hearing from, from good, reliable sources is if it's not already done, then it's pretty close. And it seems like, you know, if you're KTM, you want to do whatever Ralph Fernandez wants to keep him happy because he's clearly, as, as you mentioned with his stats, he's a future star there. I mean, to have done what he's done already in just nine races, you know, you look at Juan Mir, he only had one year in Moto2 as well. You know, he's the reigning champion now, but he didn't win a race. You know, he had, I think, four podiums. He was sixth in the world championship. Zero pole position, zero wins. Now, there was a lot of tough riders during that year as well with, with Mia, you know, guys that he's racing against now at MotoGP. But still, the point is, KTM don't want to lose Ralph Fernandez. For me, if he is going up next year, and that's what all the indications are, it's because Fernandez has decided that's what I want to do, basically. I think KTM would have been willing, if he, was, if he said, you know what, yeah, I think another year in Moto2 would be good for me, and then I'll go up, they'd have been happy to do that. But I think if, if that is happening, it's because he's decided, yeah, I'm ready. And to be honest, what more can he achieve? I mean, if he, if he just matches what he's done so far, he will have won, you know, he'll end the year with six wins and, and what, 12 podiums. I mean, if, if Moto2 is really just a transition class to get you to MotoGP, it's, it's mission accomplished, really, isn't it? It's the Quattararo factor, isn't it? He only won, officially, one race in Moto2. And look what he did when he got up to MotoGP. Uh, that has got to be an example that will be playing on Rail's mind as well, and obviously the team. You know, the fact is, is, if he does turn out to be that big bike rider, as Quattararo clearly did, then it's the definite right move. And don't hang around for another year. You know, if you didn't win the world title, Quattararo didn't win the Moto2 world title, was nowhere near it. Um, the fact of the matter is, he saw something in the bike, they saw something in him, the opportunity was there, he grabbed it with both hands, and uh, that's all she wrote, really. Mm. Could be world champion this year. Uh, he's clearly working well as, with his teammate as well in terms of Remy Gardner and, and really making sure, even though he's got more experience than he has, that he's really, you know, putting him to the test so to have those two in the same team theoretically in MotoGP could be something quite spectacular Remy is going to be absolutely brilliant on a big bike every time I've ever spoken to Wayne going back years now when he spoke about Remy he said once he gets on big bikes he just drifts them you know he's just got that he said natural ability throttle control on a big machine with plenty of horsepower um Wayne was always convinced that that Remy would come into his own once he got up there into MotoGP and he does know a bit, Wayne Gardner. 
<laughs> Despite the fact he talks a lot of rubbish on everything else, but anyway. <laughs> Hiya, Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, any complaints, do send them to uh, Keith at Crash.net and uh, we'll get them read out. Um, but, well, we shall wait and see what happens there uh, once again. But it does look like, as you're saying, Pete, the deal may well be done and perhaps even an announcement before we finish the summer break. We shall see. Still on Moto2, uh, too, though, as well. Uh, Marco Bezzecchi, there's some news coming out about him this week. You know, currently being left a little bit distant third in the championship by his IO rivals. It's actually Frank uh, Pekka Bagnaia. Uh, coming out saying that you know he's Bezzecchi's pushing like hell every single time and doing a really good job despite maybe what you're seeing on track in terms of being slightly overshadowed he was hotly tipped to make the move up last year he actually you know said no to an Aprilia ride along with many other riders as well VR46 seems like the obvious move up but it all depends on Valentino Rossi, of course, and a number of other factors. But how are you thinking Bezzecchi's season is going so far? And actually, you know, as we talk about Moto2 and just, you know, being a transition class, has he done enough already? Does it matter that he's actually being a little bit overshadowed right now? Sign of the times, isn't it, when you've got quality like that that's, um, that may be overshadowed by someone else all of a sudden. It's, a, it's just a case of the state of our sport at the moment. It's in such good order that uh, somebody like Bezeki normally you'd grab hold of him and he'd, he'd be he'd be sorted in the team. How long's a piece of string? It's one of them ones where this kind of speculation at this time of the year, the, the summer break, it's what we all do and amuse ourselves <laughs> with, isn't it? To, to, to prove how smart or not we are come uh, later in the year. I mean, I wouldn't want to be in Pete's domain all the time because when you once you write it down and it's yeah. there. <laughs> Etched forever. <laughs> Well, we're also hearing, though, Pete, that, you know, VR46 is the obvious step, but actually the Yamaha satellite could also be uh, a place that Zeki could end up. Is there as much traction there, though? Again, that all depends on what, what Valentino Rossi does. I mean, mm. if Rossi... He's leaving. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to retire. It, it... Have you seen him on his boat with his girlfriend? <laughs> I mean, he looked... He looks more at home on that bloody boat than he does on an M1 Yamaha nowadays. Will you commit that to writing? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. But, you know, there's still there's options up there, but it does all depend, doesn't it, on, on Valentino Rossi and a number of other factors, doesn't it? I, I so mean, it's difficult to gauge. Go, going back to what Keith said, you know, it's this, this big thing about young riders when they choose to make that move to MotoGP. You know, we're talking about Fernandez looking like he's probably decided, yes, you know, I only need one year and I'm going. Whereas we saw last year that guys decided, no, 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 I don't want to go yet. I want to wait another year. But what if the chance, as we're seeing now, you know, you, you don't get that progression that you may be expecting? What if next year is harder than this year and the offers all dry up? We can all think of riders that, that at one time were offered decent rides, turn them down, expecting that, that their career would get better and better and they'd be even better offers of the future. Instead, there were none. So it's, it's really difficult to know, you know, when to take the move, who with. And sometimes you've got to take a gamble. It might not be the best bike on the grid, but, you know, you've got to make something of it. And if you turn it down, it can be a risky, risky move, I think. Well, we uh, will, again, wait for that because we love a speculation. It's all you can really do, isn't it, in this uh, summer break? But we've had a couple of listener questions in as well. Uh, off the back of last week, and actually just off the back of something we've uh, been talking about there in terms of Moto2 and Moto3, Nathan has asked, uh, why don't Yamaha develop a Moto3 bike or have and or have an affiliate team so they can secure and hold on to young talent early? It's something we've discussed here. KTM had to make the risk of sort of 
delving into their talent pool a year earlier than perhaps they wanted, but at least they've got one. That's a good question, actually, because the Moto3 class opened up. Um, it's Honda and KTM now with some KTM badge bikes that are about as well. But the, the, the point being is that it's always been that way. Mahindra were there at one stage, um, looking really, really quite good before they went off electric car racing, decided to redirect their cash somewhere else to the whining electric cars. Um, I don't know what the rules are at the moment. It's it's fairly well split by Erta and Dorna. They they you know they allocate how you know the rider can't suddenly say he wants to be on a KTM if there's no more KTM berths left, for instance. And likewise, there's no you know you can't you can't naturally get a Honda should you want one, and there isn't one left in your allocation. So it's strictly controlled by Erta and and, and Dorna regarding you know who's got what. Um, so I know really the politics of that. It would be nice to have a, a bigger spread of manufacturer in Moto3, I've got to say, and that would seem to be a fair way, to answer the question, a fair way of stretching the ladder slightly at GP level for the other manufacturers. Whether Yamaha would be even interested in taking them on, I have no idea. I mean, we even saw the mighty, you know, mighty but small KTM bail out of their Moto2 uh, program to allocate all of their tech and all of their men all of their resources into the uh, into the KTM MotoGP uh, bike, and, and and it's worked wonders for them by doing that. So, I suppose it comes down at the end of the day to how stretched a manufacturer is in their funding and their their personnel. <clears throat> I don't think I don't think Yamaha have a great record, to be honest, on in their MotoGP classes. You know, Patronus, you know, the Patronus Sepang International Racing Team seemed like a knee-jerk reaction to the fact everyone was on their case that they were only running, you know, two factory bikes out there. Um, and it was to their detriment that they were running two factory bikes. It's amazing that they produced a motorbike that is as good as it is based on the amount of data that's being sucked up nowadays. I, I mentioned it last time we were talking. Ducati are going to have, what, eight bikes on the grid next year. That's a massive amount of data that's coming in um, via different teams. And with that, there are subtleties that, okay, yeah, they won't have concessions perhaps, but you can have an upgrade on a fairing, for instance, on your aero. But you can have an upgrade on your, as far as my understanding is concerned, you can have an upgrade per team. So there's a situation where you can actually alternate where you think your development's going. I think that I'm right in saying that. I'll have to speak to Danny Aldridge, the technical director, for, for a bit of clearance on that one. But I'm fairly sure that you can, you know, per team, have this, this change. Um, so keep on saying it. At this level, data is everything. When you're looking for a thousandth of a second, it's so minute that the advantage you're looking for, spread over eight bikes compared with two factory bikes and two satellite bikes like you've got in Yamaha, Ducati seem to have naturally an advantage straight away on data, um, which only underlines again how remarkable the M1 Yamaha is. It, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Gigi Dalinia is a very, very clever operator, I think, isn't he? As far as loopholes in the rules and just, just everything. And But when he speaks, he doesn't give much away. You know, he's a very good speaker. He's very, you know, he's great, but he doesn't give much away. But one of the things I remember him saying was that you, when you're developing a bike, you can't listen to just one rider. You know, even if you've got the best riders in the world, you've always got to, you've got to sort of average things and look at, as Keith was saying, you've got to look at the other bikes. And when you see the TV cameras in the pits, you'll see Gigi down in the satellite team pits after a session talking to a rider about something. 
And you just don't seem to see the other other manufacturers doing that same thing to that degree. You know, maybe KTM well, with Tektois, you, you quite often see the, the top guys, you know, going back and forth. But Gigi's always, or, or Paolo Ciabatti, the sporting director at Ducati, they're quite often seen in one of the satellite team pits listening into the to the, the debriefs or, you know, and it seems like Gigi's quite, you know, he's quite adamant on that, that you, you have to take into account. It doesn't matter if the guy's 10th place or, or first. All of that data comes in handy, as Keith was saying. It's all data that needs to apply as far as getting that bike to work the way you want it. And I think, yeah, I think having eight bikes on the grid, they know that that's going to be really helpful for them for next year. And just coming back to the Moto3 question, I, for, for me, I think the only manufacturer that there was maybe hope that they might come in was TM, the, the Italian manufacturer that had done a couple of wild cards. And I think Danny Aldridge was hoping that they might sort of make that step. And But... I guess with COVID, that's kind of put everything on hold. So it, it's, yeah, I don't know how difficult it would be under all these technical freezes now that we've got with bike design and things for a new manufacturer to actually come in. Um, it, they'd certainly be welcome. But um, I think for Yamaha, you know, as Keith said, they probably put their eggs in the Patronus basket. They probably thought VR46 as well. Those two together could be their kind of route to getting riders into the team, the MotoGP team. Um, you've got to ask, you know, how much benefit does Honda get from having the Moto3 bike? You know, okay, it's it's their bike, but there's there's individual teams within that, isn't there? The riders seem to be more sort of more allegiance to the team than the bike sometimes in those smaller classes. So it, it's a difficult one. I think that clearly we've seen the benefit of having these clearly defined staircases to the top. But as far as actually making the bike, I'm not sure it's that clear cut, if you see what I mean. Picking up on your um, data acquisition and focusing on one rider, I think Honda is the prime example of that, aren't they, really, with Mark Marquez? I mean, over the years, it's been there's only one bloke that's been able to ride that bike to the standard that he's been able to ride it. Cal Crutchlow had a damn good go at it. Takanakagami's had quite a good go at it as well. But really, that bike was focused on, on what one rider wanted, um, and one rider got it. Um, which made it very, very difficult for the other riders within the Honda team, the Honda setup. Mm, Moving well. on. Yeah, well, it's uh, one to ponder. Thank you, Nathan, for uh, that question. We've had another one in as well. Unfortunately, I haven't got a name for this one, but uh, jumping back Bert. up. <laughs> Bert. I'm going to call him Bert. Bert. He or her. <laughs> well, Bert, or potentially someone like that, has asked, uh, do you think Yamaha will try to sign Joram Mir for 2023? Personally, I think he's getting extremely frustrated at Suzuki, and I think he would be an ideal target for Yamaha. Well, I mean, Yamaha, I've had one guy that's come from Suzuki, and that didn't work out too well. So, uh, uh, Mir at the moment, I think he comes under the same heading for me. He needs to work around his problems. If Rins can come back after ramming a van on his pushbike and, and have the better of him, still pretty well injured, then I would say that Jai Mia needs to look in the mirror a little bit at himself and try to work through his own problems as well. I was, of course, alluding to Maverick Vinales going to Yamaha from Suzuki prior to, to talking about Rins again. But I don't know, Mia seems to have a, have had a dip this year. Um, has that got anything to do with the fact Davide Brivio has moved on? Maybe that pastoral care from the, you know, Brivio going to Formula One. They weren't expecting that at Suzuki. That came pretty well out of the blue, I think. And, and again, it's one of them situations where it's easy to dismiss or overlook just how important a man like Brivio would be in a team. And I think that, that 
It's an integrated setup nowadays in all of these teams. It's not just about the rider. It's about every person right the way through the the, the ecology of a, of a team, really, as it, as it develops over the years. And I think Suzuki were in a very, very good place for quite a long time. Only this year, really, they've taken a bit of a dip, in my opinion. I think absolutely, Brivio, where they will feel the loss is when they come to negotiating with riders, isn't it? I mean, that was where he was really good at picking these young guys from Moto2. Yeah. Joanne Mears, Alex Rins, Maverick Benales, and, and not only picking them, but actually fighting off other factories that wanted to get them, wasn't it? He, he you know, to, to join a team that, like, why would you join Suzuki a few years ago rather than Repsol Honda? But he was able to convince Mia, no, no, you know, you should come to us. And, yeah, it, I think that is... Because on the technical side, I mean, all the Japanese are still the same. You know, they should be able to develop the bike. The bike is obviously a great all-round package, but that is just the area you do worry they might suffer. You know, how are they going to negotiate when it comes to all these rider contracts for next year to get the guys they want? As far as Yamaha and Mir, I mean, I think a lot will depend on if you're Mia, you're looking at how the other Yamahas get on. I mean, at the moment, that is a one-man bike at the moment, isn't it? We've said Marquez and Honda, Quattararo and Yamaha. Uh, I think, you know, if, if it remains that way, you're going to be a bit cautious about going to that team. Um, but a lot can happen between now and then. Yeah, and I think that's not quite as level as perhaps you've said it there, Peter, when you think about it. I mean, Maverick Vinales clearly has got a problem. Um, 50% of it I'll put down to him and 50% down to the team because they can't seem to work it out between them. And Valentino Rossi is 42 years old. So, I mean, I think that, yeah... I understand what you're saying, but I think also there's there's other side effects there that are really making the M1 not quite as good as it probably could be. Is Quattararo that much better than Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember talking to Hervé Poncheral, actually. Quite interesting. When Quattararo's first year, his rookie year, and, you know, we were all raving about him, but remember, Hervé had had Zarco, who'd finished on the podium on a satellite Yamaha, just like Quattararo was doing. And, and I said to her, you know, Hervé... Is there much difference in what Quattararo is doing now compared to Zarco? And he said, for me, the difference is that Zarco, you know, yes, he was superb in some races. We'd be second, he nearly won at Valencia that one year. He said, but the thing was, the next week we'd be in eighth place, ninth place. He said, Quattararo is fast, fast tracks, slow tracks, wet, dry. You know, he's there every, he said, that is something that we haven't seen. And he said, that's what makes him, in Hervé's view, special. Um, and as far as being someone that, that would challenge Mark Marquez in the future. Um, you, know, you know, it's difficult to know because the Tech Toy Yamaha was always a year old bike. I mean, at the time, Quattararo's first bike was also a, a bit old. He's obviously on the latest kit now. But that was, that was interesting, I thought, in that that's what he saw as being this unique quality that Quattararo has, is that he's fast every week, you know, and that's something that they were never quite able to get with the guys they had. I mean, they had great riders. I mean, Zarco, Spees, Crutchlow list goes on doesn't it they got podiums they came so close to winning <laughs> didn't quite happen for them but it was always a bit up and down wasn't it bit of french solidarity going on there i feel somewhere Hervé's <laughs> 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 well, uh, your man i love her <laughs> 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 
Well, thank you for that one. Uh, we'll go with Bert, who sent that one in. Thank you. And uh, one last question from uh, from last week. And uh, each week at the moment during this summer break, we've sort of doing almost like a little feature each week. And last week, the debate was all around Moto E, wasn't it? Uh, and Mark Blackman has uh, commented saying, if we can't make the Moto E racing interesting because of the limitations of the bikes at the moment, then why don't we focus on making the racing interesting because of the riders? I propose the field being all legends. So I'm saying, Keith, fancy a go on uh, on the Moto E? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's got, well, there's some legs to that. If I had a pound for every time someone tried to get me back on a bike, um, <laughs> the only legend there is around here, mate, is the one that lives in my head. <laughs> and that's from a long time ago. Um, do you know what? I, I, I love it. And I'm sure that there is a huge market, as we've seen, for classics, for legends, uh, bigger ones than me, obviously, that, that, that are coming back to race and coming back to play. I mean, the Wayne Gardner's legend series, you know, he... he he was even prepared to pay me to go and play at that game. <laughs> Some riders never stop riding bikes. Ron Haslam is a great example. There's there's people like Ronnie. Ronnie's the same age as me. I think it's six months difference between us. Um, and Rocket still rides a bike all the time through all these aches and pains. And we, oh, I tell you what, when I get out of bed, it takes me five minutes to stand up straight after all the injuries and clatterings that I've had over the years. So to suddenly risk and I, and I know just just I fell out of a tree the other week and it took me nearly two weeks to get over that and that was God. nothing compared to falling off a motorbike what was I doing up a tree don't ask <laughs> too tight to pay the tree surgeon there you go I've said it now <laughs> but anyway um, I, I know how my recovery is now compared with what it was like when I was young and I bounced well I'm not interested I mean, people try to get me to do endurance racing once upon a time afterwards, whereas, I mean, endurance racing is great racing. There's no doubt of that. But just I'm, I'm, once once your once your mind has clicked over to retirement, to finishing with something, um, if you're most riders are very single minded, they don't drift. They don't really sort of they drift into retirement sometimes when they really don't want to go. But the fact is, is they know when the time is there. They, even even when they're drifting, when they're at the end of their career and they're sliding down that sort of slow slope, they know it's over. And once that starts to get to the back of your head, I mean, I'm convinced Valentino will be thinking like this. The great, the goat, the greatest of all time to many, many people. He will be thinking to himself, it's time. And he's just looking for the right opportunity and the right way to, to do it gracefully, in my view. Um, Honestly, I would be absolutely stunned and amazed if he decided to do another year. And I think that the whole paddock would be as it is at the moment. I mean, he looks so, he looks like a younger man now. He's out on the boat. He's got a massive suntan. You know, he's had a good time. He's enjoying his money. And he bloody well deserves it. He's given us all great entertainment for so long. He has, He's the reason why so many people get paid in this sport. It's because Valentino Rossi, globally has made it a sport for everyone. And, and I think that it's a great thing. It's a great thing. He deserves his retirement. He deserves all the accolades. Um, I'm not a part of the Yellow Army. I won't be fighting for that particular tribe because I hate tribalism in sport anyway. Uh, don't get us going on that one, Harry. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> After this weekend that's just passed. But the point is, is that Valentino Rossi, he should be Sir Valentino Rossi. 
Or what are the Ital- Italian equivalent of that is? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it will be an even bigger shot, wouldn't it, if he made a move to Moto E? But that was our uh, discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. He's got an electric but... watch. <laughs> I'm not. No one's. I'm not putting that in down in writing. Um, but that was our big discussion last week, of course. And thank you for everybody who got involved. This week, though, it is all about the life of Keith Hewin. <laughs> How long he got, uh, <laughs> Keith? And I know Pete's yeah. got some questions to ask as well. And we've had some listener ones coming too. So uh, we're going to chuck them at you, but very relaxed. Just take it where you want to go. Born according to Wikipedia, in Southend-on-Sea in Essex, which is correct, but not too far away from me, actually. I'm Essex. Um, you've raced... You've got a posh voice, though. I know. You went to a proper school. I know. I was born in... I was actually born in East London, mate. So... Uh, oh, were you? Yeah. You should have got out of that, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Very, yeah, very You very should have gone to work for BT. They're in East London. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You've, I've heard some things about them from you, Keith. But, that <laughs> but they raced... You raced, of course, for Honda, Suzuki, Yamaha, Power Teams, across the 350 and 500s cc classes but before all of that i want to know first of all what was it that first hooked you what how did it bite you and and what made you want to go okay i want to be a professional motorcycle rider yeah it's a very i think everybody from from my era i mean i was probably quite lucky in that that my era was it was easy everything was easy back then you want to go to school you don't want to go to school I never went to school. I went off on my push bike and rode my push bike around the, the streets. I was always the fastest on a push bike around our way. We had these massive brick fields out the back where they dug out all these, uh, the original clay and the like, which were full of ponds and motorbike tracks around them. And this big scrapyard that you could jump in and, you know, no health and safety. You could do whatever you like. It was a much easier time in, in my childhood than it is now. Um, I'm quite pleased that I had my childhood when I had it. Um, and, it, and it gave opportunities. It also cut opportunities off later in life because you hadn't made up that social network that you should have been concentrating on. You weren't politically correct. You weren't able to put the business side of things together. I could have done with a, with a bit of an education rather than just one from life. Uh, Ronnie Haslam's another good example of that. I mean, Rocket was, was someone who came through just because he had a love of motorcycles. For me, it was push bikes first when I was a youngster. My uncle was a speedway rider. My mum's brother was a speedway rider. So from five years old onwards, I'd be at shale tracks everywhere, you know, all over the country from Exeter to, to Sheffield and the like. Um, so he was a massive influence to me. I'll tell you more about him in a minute. Um, but I never fancied the shale, never fancied going, going to Speedway. So as soon as I managed to, to save up enough cash, I, I bought myself a, a, a trials bike as it was, and it ended up with a with road tires on it and I was scratching around the lanes again hugely illegal and completely wrong and I'm not condoning it at all or suggesting for one second that anybody should be doing it then or now but that was how it was back then we were all absolute bloody hooligans from the seaside and uh, we'd be getting up to everything we shouldn't be getting up to and that's how it all started effectively and I found I was faster than everybody else there was around me um it developed into a situation where there were there were two guys when we moved my mum and dad moved up to Northampton when I was 15 and I'd got myself into a little bit of trouble with the law. You won't be surprised to hear from, <laughs> from, from some of the antics just then. And I had a choice. I could stay down in Southend with some friends or, or move up with my parents up to where my uncle, my speedway riding uncle, and my parents were moving to in Northampton. So I came up to Northampton and it proved to be a really, really good move because um, I met two lads, Bill Langley and Steve Trassler. Steve Trassler was from Northampton. Bill Lang- Langley was from Wellingborough. And both of them quite quick on motorbikes. And they gave me a bit of space in a van. And I just bought this crook Suzuki off some bloke for 
three or four hundred quid or whatever it was, and that was my first club race bike, which I immediately started winning on. So it kind of, I was lucky. There was a little bit of a, a, a spark there early on, and back in the day, you could do it for no money, just a bit of dedication. And I think there were a lot of people like me back then. Well, that's the thing you hear a lot of these days, isn't it? Money is such a factor. So it's kind of good to hear that it wasn't initially to begin with. But let's, let's sort of pick up on, you know, who, your influences and, and who was that big influence, as you, as you alluded to at the start of it all? Well, Uncle Alan, I mean, the first thing about competition is you need a, it's a process, isn't it? I mean, it's something that you need to, you know, you, 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 you can run what you brung, you can turn up, you can be the, you know, airy, greasy, you know, oik that turns up on a motorbike and be reasonably fast. But, you, you know, being reasonably fast is only part of the deal. You've got to be able to work it out. You've got to be able to work out, you know, how to do this, the, the, the process about racing a motorcycle. There's a load more to it than just going fast. You've got to work out how long your tyres are going to last, whether you're going to be able to, you know, make them last for the entirety of the race. It's all a little bit more cerebral than I think I'm probably giving it credit for at the time. And, of course, Uncle Alan was, was a pretty good speedway rider at the time. Um, and... I could see what he and his team were doing in a very raw sense of racing because Speedway is raw. And so that was the spark really for me, the competition side of it. I was always competitive. I always wanted to win everything anyway. It wouldn't matter what it was, tiddlywinks or, or racing motorbikes. I have to win. And it's still like it now. It's ridiculous. Me and Hodgson, I mean, he's bloody 20 years younger than me. You know, and he, he, we're still competitive as hell with each other over everything. doesn't matter what it is, who gets the coffees first, who can run around the, the broadcast tent you know, fastest and make it to the bloody microphone quickest. You know, it's, it's a ridiculous situation to be in, but that's how most competitive people are. Um, you know, you've got to win with a bit of grace. You've got to be humble when you when you lose. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult situation to to equate in words. But Alan was the, was the uh, instigator of all of that. Uh, sadly, he took his own life later on in life when he's the age that I'm at now. He took his own life. Um, and I think that that's the other side of the sport that people don't see, that intensity, that world travel, that um, achievement that you make is so intense, is so up there that a lot of riders and a lot of team people don't actually get over that. It's quite difficult, that life after the adrenaline rush, that constant adrenaline rush, that constant strive for perfection, to want it to absolutely everything to be in line for, every, for everything to be how it should be it's very difficult after after you retire you know i i won't mention names of, of friends of mine but i i see friends of mine that that struggle still um i bumped into one at alton park i mean it's very very sad uh people around the paddock will know british paddock will know exactly what i'm talking about it, it's you know life has a habit of of not being where you want it to be after you finish racing if you're lucky like me and you've got a, a faster mouth than i was on a motorbike then you tend to find a job that, that really, really works. And I've been very, very fortunate. And I thank every broadcaster that ever hired me, including Crash.net in this situation, because it's a pleasure doing business with you two. But it's, it's kind of one of them things where nothing, nothing can get near to uh, racing a motorcycle. You, you, you know, it's why I get slightly frisky when I, I see trolls picking on people after they're racing or when they get slipping downhill. You know, they have given everything they've got to be the position they are. Wherever that is, it might be first, but it might be tenth. You know, there's some great riders that never really made it to the podium even. Um, but they have still put everything in their life to, to achieve that. Um, and so 
sliding out of that and having to get a, an, another job, for instance, an ordinary job, which you quite often see with some riders, they have to work at, a, you know, laying pipes or a plumber or whatever it might be. And that's, you know, very, very hard after you've had some accolades of being a, a top line racer. I'm waffling on again because I do do it, you know. You'd think you'd think I was paid by the by the bloody word, wouldn't you? <laughs> no one would be able to afford you if that was the case. But it, re <laughs> it really that is that is fascinating, though it is because you don't hear about that side at all uh, enough. I think it's it's becoming more and more talked about in the modern day. But you know, especially I don't think people understand the the sheer ferocity of how often that occurred, especially you know back back in your day when it was first. Well, not when you were first starting out and seeing the people in front of you. Well, I think mental health has been there all the time. Mm. It's just that nowadays it's more upfront. Yeah. Everybody understands mental health. I mean, it's uh, my only advice to anybody in there, and I've suffered from it as well. It's not like I've not had mental health issues as well. I think we all have. I mean, you'd be, you wouldn't have had a life if you haven't had a little bit of, um, you know, mental difficulty here and there. And it's how you deal with it now in modern times. I think it's spoken about a lot more. You know, encouragement to to reach out to somebody that, that might be able to help. I didn't and couldn't, um, and my uncle clearly couldn't either, um, because I was devastated when he did what he did. Um, but it is what it is. Um, I don't know whether this is amusing or absolutely horrendous, but I'll share it with you anyway. I mean, my dad, my dad, who who was notorious, he's dead now as well, but he was notorious. He died of natural causes, by the way. Uh, my dad was um, was 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 a notorious uh, comedian when it came to certain things, and. Um, on the death of my uncle, he said to me, he said, well, he always wanted to be taller. <laughs> I'm not sure whether you can share that with anybody on this podcast, but, but at the time it was quite amusing, I must say, because it, it kind of lightened the situation. That, and even, even Alan would have appreciated that. That was my mm. uncle. That's my middle name as well, by the way. Me and mum and dad named me. The middle oh, name came nice. after me, Uncle Alan. So it's... Um, <clears throat> I think if you have an issue or you feel like you're heading in that direction, you reach out, you talk about it, and and you know at least you give yourself a chance to sort of bring it back into line and, and get a bit of perspective. Life is actually good. Life is really good, difficult and uh, and easy. Whichever side of things you are, I mean, it's there for it's there for you to get over. It's there for a reason. I love the the, the, the roller coaster that's that's life in general, and I'm racing. I've lost very good friends through through racetrack incidents. I've lost very good friends in road incidents. Um, you've just heard I've lost my uncle, who was a mentor for me when I was from very young, from when I was five years old onwards. Um, so shit happens, but it's it's all there, and that's riding the uh, roller coaster of life, I think. Yeah, I, I think you you, talk, you speak about it excellently. I think there's a point to be made here, actually. You know, if you are watching or listening to this and, you know, struggling a little bit, we'll put um, details of organisations you can talk to, speak to, in, you know, anonymously or we'll give them a ring. We'll, uh, we'll put all those details down in the uh, on our YouTube page and, and on screen as well for you to, uh, to reach out if you uh, are feeling like that as well. But it is very important, of course, to, to speak about these things and we are doing so more and more, which is, uh, which is brilliant to see. But uh, coming back to the on-track action for you, Keith, making your way up through the ranks, how quickly was it for you where you started to realise I'm kind of good at this. I think I can I can go pretty high up. You know, what talk us through then the next phase, I suppose. So you, you're starting out your junior levels and then what what's the next because the ladder's changed obviously since since those days. So what 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 was the ladder and, and where were you seeing those uh those steps that you could make? 
you never had track days in my time so you never had an incident you didn't have a situation where you had professionally done track days you had track open days where you could run up and there'd be carts running around and every other class of motorcycle as well at the same time so there were there were some tracks that, that you know a wednesday afternoon you could have a blast around mallory park or something like that so that would be the natural place for most people to start it, um, is where I did. I did a couple of them. Then I entered the club racing. Club racing is superb or was superb. I don't quite know how it is now in the UK, but it was a superb step for all of us. Then you went into national races. Your license grades went from club racing, international, then international. Um, club racing, national, then international. Um, and then Grand Prix licensing. That's how it works. So. I went from club racing to international in about a year. It just, for me, I got on a motorbike and was fast. Um, the year after, 1975 was that year I was talking about that I got the, the lift with Bill Langley and Steve Trassler. 76, I spent in Cornwall in a tent with a, a, a blonde called Janice, as you do. 77, I missed, um, I came back to ride in 77 um, by 78, I was right on the ladder internationally. 79, I won the British Championship in the UK um, and started doing Grand Prix with Arnie Fletcher up at Len Manchester Motorcycles, as was. Um, and then, obviously, Suzuki took an interest. So, Factory Suzuki came my way. Um, and onwards and upwards. It was, it was quite a meteoric start to it, but it kind of dipped in the middle. And that's where I alluded to earlier on, where the management side of things, my skill as a, as a, as a, as a, as, a, as an individual, you, it was great being Jack the lad, but I didn't have the tools or the management to be able to move it on from there, mm. and that really did hamper my progress as a Grand Prix rider, and my attitude in dealing with the likes as it was then Peter Ag and Morris Knight, who were the managing directors of Heron Suzuki down in Crawley, as was. Um, they, I remember, the, I remember Morris Knight was recovering from throat cancer at the time, so there were all these signs everywhere saying no smoking. Bearing in mind back then, I smoked like a chimney, um, so I couldn't even smoke in the premises to talk business with them. And I remember saying, I said to him, "Well, what are you expecting from me?" And he said, "Well, I expect you to win." And I remember thinking. Shit, I've only just come from club racing and there's, there's a factory bike coming my way and they want me to win straight away. I think uh, Mamola had been on it the year before and I was getting Mamola's second-hand motorbikes for the next year. Bearing in mind, he had factory contracts with Michelin and, and no, and we couldn't. We could only have a Dunlop contract, which was, it didn't work, let's put it that way, um, in that year. But it was a muddle. You muddled through in my day. You don't do that now. There's strategy behind everything now. Um, whereas in our day, it was just a case of firefighting every day, every week, every month of a racing year. Um, when you traveled, you know, when, when I traveled, we would be away and that was it. You never came back to the UK. No mobile phones, remember? None of, no sat-navs. You had to work everything out. When you drove to a racetrack, you drove around it three times trying to find the bloody entrance. You know, it was... <laughs> It was it, it was amateur hour in compared to where we are now. I mean, I look back fondly on it because it was a great time for a kid yeah. that was you know traveling abroad, abroad for the first. I'd never been on an airplane. I'd never never you know been abroad as a kid. I'd only been down to a holiday camp, I think, on the south coast at one stage. It was the furthest I've been away from home. So all of a sudden, you're in a van and driving into Europe, the big wide world, as it felt like at the time. Bearing in mind that 
you know, Grand Prix back then was more a European championship than it is now. I mean, now you travel the world properly and it's a proper world championship. But back then it was a, a European world championship with a few international meetings that you could earn big money off in between them. Mm-hmm. So they were, you, you never had to come home. You just stayed out. But if you weren't into washing in a cold bucket of water and um, other ablutions in a cardboard box that you then threw behind the equivalent hedge, um, it, you lived a very basic life but a very good life and a, and, a, and a great fun life with a huge amount of camaraderie. I mean, there wasn't anybody in the paddock that wouldn't lend you something if you needed it, including money. You know, it was quite a friendly friendly paddock at the very highest level. Down with Sheeny, of course. Sheeny and, I mean, Frank and Iris, his mum and dad, used to look after me and my then-girlfriend, Carolyn, mother of my eldest daughter. Um, you know, she was, Carolyn was 16, I think, and I was 18. I don't know, I'd have been much more than that, actually. She was 16, I was 20. 21 then, that was when Iris and, and Frank looked after us effectively out there. We didn't have food, we didn't have anything. Frank had come into the awning, he'd sit there with me, let me tell you a story, boy. And he'd get in really close and spit all over you. Love Frank O'Sheen, just one of the best people in the world. And Iris, just so funny. I remember pulling the, the hatch on this caravan that I was drunk in, laying, cuddling the toilet like you were, and Iris opening the thing, Drunken slob, she shouted at me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was between Grand Prix, obviously. Yeah. Um, actually, I remember where that was. Oh, Christy, we could go on here. Mike Trimby was in the earliest days. This was before Erta. This was pre-Erta. So I'm parked up alongside Mike Trimby. And um, me and him have gone to twang the catch fences at Rijeka back in the time when Yugoslavia was still Yugoslavia, way before you were born, Harry. So you probably don't need to be in this. And uh, Yugoslavia was a real, Rijeka was a dangerous old track with catch fences in it. And me and Trimby went up there to, to twang a few catch fences and, and he, he was going to tell them to take them out. And uh, we went with the organiser to a little pub and had a, a couple of drinks. Well, I don't know what was in it, but Mike ended up driving my Ford Capri. He was drunk and I'm hanging out the side of it, getting rid of the contents of whatever I've just drunk. <laughs> And that was when Iris Sheen saw me laying around cuddling my toilet in my, my caravan. These, these stories are coming back in no particular order. But I, I could actually do probably three or four hours of these. Maybe I should write them down one day, do a little book. Oh, I think, <laughs> oh, absolutely. That has got to happen. But it, it sounds, what an amazing, you know, uh, life up in working and being in the paddock. Some of the, the highlights, I imagine there's probably a lot. I would think that was second place wasn't it in in 1981 on a 350 cc yamaha at silverstone that's got to be up there surely british grand prix is it's funny when you we were watching the football as everybody was over the weekend and you know england at wembley a lot of pressure there's two things that happen usually when you're at home at your home grand prix or your home match or whatever it is and i'm not suggesting for a moment that england did this as a team they didn't i thought they, their performance was you know, pretty good throughout the tournament. But the point being is you either, you win or choke. Those are the things that happen when you get to your home Grand Prix. Some riders choke, some riders elevate. It brings the best out of them, something a little bit special. I was always lucky that at Grand Prix, I, I never felt like I ever left anything on the table wherever I was in the in the field. And uh, the British Grand Prix at Silverstone is a highlight, but it's a highlight not really just for making a podium in front of your home crowd, 120,000 people. When you go around on that bloody flat truck after that, and you've got 120,000 people shouting at you, it's pretty spectacular. Um, but because 
Bob Reynolds and Dave Ledsom, who were the managing directors, the owners of a firm called SDC Builders, they built the Woodcook complex as it was back in the day, and they had a suite right in the middle of it. Those guys were just the best. They were fantastic. They looked after me so well financially and, and you know, mentally, I've got to say, they knew about business. They were smart fellas. And uh, God rest the pair of them. The other one, you know, Bob only died a couple of weeks ago, three, a couple of months ago, sorry. So we only lost uh, Bob just, just recently. Friends from that day until then. So it's kind of one of those things where I, I didn't just have sponsors. I had people that were friends mm. of mine when, when, when they got involved with our team. And uh, of course, the, the, they were drunk for the rest of the week. They, that, that woodcut suite remained open for a, another day. The, the Grand Prix had finished, everyone had gone home, but the SDC Builders suite was still rocking and rolling the next day. Um, so that was a great memory. Uh, there are, I think people are my best memory in racing as much as performances. There are performances, but that's clinical. People would say, why are you in a bad mood? You just won the race. And I had to think about it. And the reason why I was in a bad mood is because I was looking forward to the next race. We'd done what we set out to do. The only time that I was really very um, interested in talking much after a race was if I didn't win. Then we had to analyse what was going on. And that's when you, you had to work things out. But if you'd won, you'd done what you set out to do. So that wasn't a big talking point for me. Um, but it's the people that, that, that I was involved with, people that helped me, the other racers that were around. I mean, I, I, could, I could name you know tens of of friends that aren't with us anymore unfortunately through through racing uh, and the like so it's a it can be a very sad situation one highlight there i suppose i've got to mention because i didn't bring racing friends into my localized friendship circle i kept them separate not intentionally that's just how it was but neil robinson smarty robinson from Northern Ireland, who was destined to be a world champion, no doubt in my mind about that. Smarty Robinson was killed at Scarborough because we used to do international races in those days that were on slightly less safe tracks, to put it mildly. And Neil was killed at, at Scarborough, but he was an integral part of us at that time. We travelled together, he knew my family, you know, radi radi ra. So when he was killed, it was a massive, massive blow, a real test. And I, I think there, there are riders that will have gone through that. Do I continue? Don't I continue? What? It's a real dilemma when something like that hits you and your family in this instance mm -hmm. so closely. Who? Deep subjects, chaps. It, it, it is. Well, I was, I'm going to ask you now, who was the best you've ever raced against? Who was the best? The best that I ever saw in my era. There's two. One is the first ever alien, and I'm still trying to get him to talk on this podcast. First ever alien is Freddie Spencer, um, without any doubt. There's nobody, the other one, I'll, I'll bring the other one in, Kenny Roberts, because Kenny Roberts could ride a garden gate, no matter what you gave him, he would work it out and he could ride a garden gate. So Kenny Roberts senior, that is, um, and Freddie Spencer. Now the difference between the two was, Freddie was digital, um, Kenny was analog. You know, <laughs> Kenny was a hard racing, paddock animal that could work out a motorbike. Freddie worked on a different level. I'd never seen anything quite like it. I could understand what Kenny was doing with a motorbike. Whether I could do it or not was another matter, but I could understand what he was doing with it. Freddie, you looked at him and thought, how on earth? A bit like you say nowadays with Mark Marquez. It's why I think that the aliens thing, I mean, people go, what aliens? What on earth are you on about? You know, trolls love you for saying it because they usually get down on you when it comes to that, that comment. But 
it's true when you see somebody do something on a motorbike and you go wow where does that where do you first start to think about doing that differently and freddie was the first i'd ever seen do that um, before tire warmers he'd scrub a front tire in the cold front tire in in the first two corners and you go Whoo, he should have crashed a thousand times but he never did um, and like Mark Marquez, he is the latest alien of them all. You know, Casey Stoner, Jorge Lorenzo. Um, you know, you can start mentioning a few names here. Yep. I'm sure we've all got our own that we think that um, are just that little that little cut above. You know, and some people will say, well, what, what's Jorge Lorenzo do that was special? Well, if you if you race motorbikes and you looked at him, you would understand what I'm talking about. If you don't race motorbikes, it, it's it's, it's sometimes, I mean, re with respect to you, you both, um, when it comes to bikes, when a journalist talks like he kind of understands what's going on on the bike, most don't because they've not yet actually raced at that level, but with that motorbike just moving the tiniest amount. I'm well behind the game now. You know, I, I think I mentioned this in a podcast previously that um, when you sit with a current racer, you spot something and you always stamp the floor. It always makes you jump when you see something. But when you're sitting with a, common, a current racer alongside you, he stamps the floor a millisecond before you do. He's already seen it. And I think that's the difference. And I think journalists are just sometimes, again, with respect to all journos, some are racers as well, so it's not valid to an exceptional degree. But the point is, is that journos see it a little bit after old racers see it it's, it's all like a pecking order of where you see the thing it's why i love working with someone who's current silvan gintoli recently has been he's, he's elbowed his way in down at bt <laughs> and his comments are just brilliant they're just and they're ahead of what michael laverty is saying even though michael laverty is current and michael laverty and neil hodgson are vying for that same position we're talking milliseconds between their comments but it's it's interesting to see how current racers see stuff just that little bit clearer than older racers do. I've just lost some friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a lot of friends, I think, from the, uh, the this podcast because uh, we've had a few questions come in as well. So uh, I'm going to sort of uh, direct the rest of this conversation through the listener questions. And Pete, feel free to butt in whenever you like. Um, but let's start with Alan Ho who has asked, Keith, when you came back to the UK on the Suzuki GSX-R750 for the Superstock series, it looked like you really enjoyed it and rode the wheels off that bike. Was the Superstock series more fun than the GPs? Different kind of fun. Less pressure. You know, you're on the downslope by then. That's a recognised situation. I have to liken my old mate, Court Ballington. Court Ballington, four times a world champion, 250 and 350, double 250, 350 world champion, South African, brilliant guy, really, really good guy. When he went out to the AMA series on a 250, he could beat them beggars all day long with his eyes shut. He came back to a series that he was just going to be fast in. When you are at a Grand Prix, there is not a moment during your day where you are not honing something. Your thinking, your bike, everything. You, I can't explain how intense it is. You do not leave anything to chance you are working all day all night you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about a gearbox ratio a you know primary drive ratio or whatever it might be a jet in sequence as it would have been in the old days there 
it never leaves you. But when you come back to the UK, it's all a bit more relaxed. You know, you turn up on a Saturday morning and you have a bit of a blast around and it's pissing down with rain one minute, sun's out the next minute. It's a wholly different kind of kettle of fish, so you can enjoy yourself. And Superstock basically was a was a was a badly modified road bike. Um, you know, and road bikes back then weren't that great, so it was it was riding an old diesel on the track, and it was quite good fun. And you're right, I really did enjoy coming back to it. I didn't enjoy being beaten by the Amars back in the day, so I bought the Amar in the end, and we went out and won it. But it was one of those situations where, <laughs> in fact, that. <laughs> That led to one of my proudest moments, a whole page dedicated to me in motorcourse in 1987 because Michelin took out an advert in motorcourse that said, congratulations, Keith, the only rider to win any championship on, on anything other than a Michelin. <laughs> <laughs> Something along those lines. Brilliant. Anybody that's got a 1987 version of motorcourse, you can look it up and, uh, and work the quote out. But uh, Michelin took an advert out for a Dunlop rider. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> and they didn't ask me or pay me. <laughs> and you know how much that hurts. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, uh, so that's a Superstock. Yeah, Superstock was good yeah. fun. And back in the day, back then, nobody was running fast bikes. Everybody, everybody who was anybody ran in Superstock because there was, it, there was no money in the country. The whole country had come to an almost, you know, halt regarding sponsorship. So every man and his dog, all the quick guys were all on Superstock. So Superstock was the class. It was the top class of the of the British Championships, remarkably. Talking about bikes, Keith, but going back a bit, I mean, obviously you were there mid to early 80s, these legendary 500s. I mean, what was, the, what was your first contact with those sort of bikes like? You know, what was the key to going fast on them? What did the you touched on it earlier with Freddie? What did, what did the champions have that 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 made them stand out on these these sort of bikes? Rubber bones. <laughs> um, they, the, I mean, back in the day, I mean, I I came up through TZ seven fifties, which were obviously slightly milder power um, and a slightly bigger, broader range. You know, I think you had three thousand RPM to play with which won the lot with a motorbike that had a tiny little contact patch and, and horrible tires back in the day. You know, you had no electronics, so you had no control over traction control or, or any of the launch controls or any of those things. You had very basic suspension on the things as well and very, very, very basic tires. It amazes me now when you see pictures of, you know, I've got stuff in my archive here that, that you, you're on absolutely on its side with everything drifting around. And I think to myself, bloody hell, you know, and I think it's why some some guys, when they get to ride some of these classic bikes, they really enjoy it. I think if you get somebody really, really good, you know, does the Spa Classic, the Yamaha or something along those lines, you know, and they ride one of these classic old 500s. And even the, even the 500 two-strokes developed into something with a little bit more torque. Um, you know, but then you went to the Screamer versions of of, Yamaha, of Honda where, where they really were animals. I mean, the Wayne Gardner era is slightly scary. You know, the, the, the late 80s when the 500s really started to, to get silly but back in, in my day a 500 it was a handful not an easy motorbike to ride not an easy motorbike to be very precise on um quite quick but not that quick anywhere near by today's standards you know 100 and probably 70 75 mile an hour was it um on one of those things um in fact i stepped off one about you know, somewhere approaching that at, at Salzburg um, when somebody fell off in front of me and I T-boned the thing right in the middle of the track. That was a fairly big old crash. Um, but it's kind of, 
I enjoy riding them because I didn't know anything different. I think I'd really enjoy riding an M1 Yamaha now. Um, uh, I don't know whether I'd like all the... I'd, I'd need a crew chief just to sort out all the buttons and pushes and things. Yeah. I'd, I have trouble working my bloody phone nowadays. <laughs> I'm one of them for them. <laughs> but uh, they, were, they were good times for their time. Massive discrepancy, Pete, between factory bikes and privateer bikes then, or what would be known as independent now. And you would be in a straight line, anything up to 20 miles an hour slower than a, a factory bike. And of course, they would launch out of a corner better. Plus the fact they would have something along the lines of, um, you know, factory type tires. What you had then is a big discrepancy in tires. You had Dunlop tires that would have like the factory versions that all the top Dunlop guys would get and we'd get the shit that was left over. And the Michelin guys, you know, Michelin was generally better across all of the Grand Prix than Dunlop were. That's a fact. Um, you come to Donington, having said that, and Dunlop was miles better than Michelin. But most of the tracks, it was the other way around. Michelin was better than Dunlop. And you'd have the same, exactly the same situation. You'd see the Michelin lorry come in on a Saturday night in the dark, bringing a new load from Montpellier or wherever they're based, uh, of factory tyres. They've just mixed up a new batch for whoever it might be, for Mamola or Robert, uh, you know Eddie or whoever it might have been at the time that was running them. But So you didn't have much chance on either grip or frontline performance. So you were, always, you were always looking at winning the privateer race. Which is why, getting back to the, the 350 Brick Grand Prix, most of those bikes you could compete with because Dunlops were the tyre that worked the best and your privateer bike wasn't that much different. The one I built for myself, we built it in our garage at home. It wasn't done by anybody else. Uh, with a bit of input, I've got to say, from Roger Keane as well, who was a superb tuner at the time. He would provide, he would sort the crank out and stuff like that. But, um, you know, you could compete with the factory bikes. You know, I've split the two works Kawasaki's to wit to finish second at that time you know anton mang was disappeared somewhere in the distance i couldn't see him and jean francois balde was bringing the second factory bike home until i dive bombed him on the last corner to get second off him ha! <laughs> and he still he still jokes about it now when i see him around the paddock <laughs> i don't know what bastard is for in french but anyway he calls me it <laughs> oh well um, you also did the Isle of Man TT in uh, oh. 1981. I want to move on to now because Adam Keeble and I, we are running out of time, but there's still some things I, we have to absolutely cover. Uh, Adam Keeble uh, has asked, Keith, could you please tell us more about your Isle of Man TT experience in 1981? What was it like to ride the course at racing speed and what prevented you returning the following year? I think I can cover that in one thing. I don't think I actually... Um wrote the course at racing speed but anyway <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing about the tt was slightly strange because i w i went to the northwest 200 the year before in 1980 uh, broke the outright circuit record the first time i'd been there and won the feature race um so straight away everybody thought i was going to be this outstanding roads rider and what they hadn't actually allowed for was that um there's only about four corners in the the uh, Northwest 200 compared to the, I don't know how many hundred there are around the 37 and three quarter miles of TT. I did the winter over there. Uh, the, the TT organizers, they used to be very well organized and they um, invited me over for a, a free week, free hire car. I mean, what youngster couldn't, could turn it down really? A car to destroy over the course of a week, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Doing the TT course. And I learned the TT course pretty much backwards. Um, I was in Rijeka. Uh, the Yugoslavian Grand Prix, and we had to get back that weekend. So my brother and my mechanic brought one truck back uh, with the 500cc Suzuki in the back and another 
mechanic took a sleeved down 350TZ, Roger Keane again, had sleeved this uh, 350 down to a 250, which I was going to run in the then junior race. So I had a bike on the Isle of Man. I flew back while the truck was coming with the other bikes back. So I got the, anyway, the first time I actually hit the track when it was um, a closed circuit, closed road, uh, was a nightmare. It rained on one part, it was dry on another part, it was foggy on another part. You got four seasons in one lap. It was just unbelievable. Um, but it was okay. It was I was having a good old ride around there. But I have difficulty in the mornings. I either have to stay out all night if I want to be up at five o'clock. Because oh, getting up at five o'clock in the morning is just... I am the world's worst at getting out of bed early. And if you can't get out of bed early and get your brain in the gear fairly quickly, that early morning practice session... It is a killer. Oh. It's awful. It's the, and then it would rain. So you, you'd sit in the paddock in the van, shoulders slumped with it, chucking it down with rain outside. You know it's not going to happen, but you've got to be there just in case it does. Um, and then again, the crux of it is, and there's a bit of a theme running through this podcast at the moment, isn't there? Um, they paid me a huge amount of money, a huge amount of money that actually paid for the entire year of Grand Prix travel. Wow. Um, just for me to turn up. Um, again, because I think that they thought from the Northwest 200 performance the year before that I was going to be the uh, dog's what's-its and um, therefore they wanted to encourage me to do it. The TT was too late in my career. I'd I was already slightly established as an up-and-coming, I won't use star, but I was an up-and-coming competitor at that time. And I think the problem was the TT came to me a bit late. If I'd been someone who had been there a year or two earlier and giving myself a bit of time there was too much expectation from my own part and from others part that put too much pressure on for a track like that um luckily i i, I actually gr had grown some common sense back in the day so i was quite prepared to ride it accordingly but if i'd been tempted to try and ride it as fast as i needed to um there was a fellow called skippy blake kenny blake was killed right in front of me um I think it was Union Mills, I think. I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was part of the track that was still damp and you couldn't see it. And you came flying through there, flat out on a 500. And the next thing, I am completely sideways and, and, and stayed on. Kenny didn't and he was killed. And that's the difference uh, on a racetrack like that. You, you, you know, you, you, if, you have, if you make one mistake or if there's one particular problem with the racetrack somewhere along the lines or there's a myriad of other things that can go wrong, um, you pay quite heavily. Well, thank you, Adam, for uh, that question. And the Isle of TT does sound like it really is sort of a once uh, a, a lifetime experience almost that you have to. Uh, you got to go, Harry. Yeah. Actually, from a spectator point of view, uh, yeah. and from a festival point of view, it's fantastic. I mean, the TT I'd recommend to anybody. I know, uh, it's I've, a great I've, event. I've had my eye on it for years, but I've never never done it, but well, I've never been. But um, it just looks like it. It's it, crash podcast amazing. from the TT. Oh, it's coming. Let's do it. I want to get us to Silverstone. I don't know if that's going to be allowed, but <laughs> I'm going to make the case to the to the bosses upstairs in our, well, we're all in different places, but you know what I mean. Um, Alan Duncan has asked, Keith, if you could do it all over again, would you choose to race now with better bikes, tracks, safety, or to return to the days when you raced, obviously, in GPs with the lifestyle you had then and probably that you probably wouldn't get nowadays? That's a provocative question, isn't it? and a lovely one um it would be now really? fact of the matter is you can't compromise safety yeah. as much as my heart and my entire being enjoyed so much the tracks we went to and the danger there was involved 
when you see the team packing up the stuff and their rider's no longer with them, that's not such a great feeling. Mm. It's not great to watch. And, you, and you're only seeing the, the tip of the iceberg of that situation. You know, even now, I mean, Luis Salom always comes to mind, the Catalonia. You know, there's a, there's a racetrack you think is the, one of the safest in the world. And Luis Salom lost his life there. And his mum, we used to always say hello to his mum. You know, Julian Ryder had a crush on his mum. <laughs> and uh, she'd be at the paddock all of the time. And then all of a sudden, she's not because Luis is not anymore. And I mean, I, it's devastating. So I think that track safety is the most important. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a top-line sport at the end of the day. It's, a, it's, a, it's our pinnacle of our sport. It, it should be the safest it can be at all times. You know, it's, it's, it's sad that we don't go to Spa places like that i mean great racetracks super racetracks and, and it would make an absolute spectacle for moto gp i mean honestly you would be breathtaking um but you can't compromise safety at the uh, you can't compromise safety wherever possible mm. um but least of all in your top line sport yeah i think a Sorry lot of people that. would find that hard to uh, to disagree with so uh, thank you alan now i know it is criminal to gloss over some few a uh, few points of your career but in the interest of time we will we've got we're here all year i think so we will i'm sure we'll cover something at some point but let's end this uh with your move into the commentary world because we did allude to it right at the start it is difficult for a lot of riders to, to find what they're going to do a purpose i suppose post their their professional riding careers you where uh, you found yourself behind the mic suddenly working with uh, BT Sport in the UK. So talk to us about the move into commentary. Was it sort of a bit of a surprise for you that it came about or was that sort of something you had your eye on already? It's only sudden to you youngsters, you see. That's the thing. No. No. I mean, it, it's happened, it happened a long, long time ago. The fact was, as I was doing commentary at Trackside with the likes of Chris Carter while I was still racing, oh. Um, I'd got invited to do Anglia. They had a wheels program that's, um, you know, with some great people from Anglia Television. It was in the old days, you know, regional television uh, companies had sports departments. So you would work for the Anglia Television or Central Television or wherever it was. In fact, I think uh, there's been a few, I think Vic Wakeling, who was head of Sky Sports years ago, he's passed now, so he's another great guy that's that's no longer with us. But Vic Wakeling, who was head of Sky Sports for, for when it was first uh, instigated, um, he was part of Central Television, and I actually worked with him unbeknowingly. But you, you'll find if you look up on on television uh, on uh, that wonderful thing Google now and again, you'll find a picture of me riding a 500cc Suzuki with the biggest head camera you've ever seen, literally. There's a camera one side that's this big, and there's a battery this side in an open face helmet, and I'm on a mo I'm on a, a GP500, and because this thing fitted so badly, when we came down Crane of Curves, I had to turn my head twice as much to keep the camera facing forwards, so it was like this all the time. Um, there are pictures of it out there. Was that the fact, first ever on board or something like that on board camera? <laughs> it was an on board. It was an on board camera. This camera was to shoot a couple of laps for Central wow. Television. This is this is 1983. It is a long time ago, but the technology has really improved. Since, since the camera's about as big as my finger yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, back in the day, broadcasting broadcasting was free tea and coffee and a, and a handful of sandwiches. And you'd go in and have a laugh over the 250 race or the production bike race or whatever it was. Anglia then took it a bit more serious with me and, uh, and employed me for a while. But then, of course, it was, again, it, so many things are luck in this game. Mm. Up came good old Eurosport, which was then owned by Murdoch before it went across to uh, France. 
Eurosport was owned by by Rupert Murdoch. It was the pre-runner to to Sky Sports, and they wanted me and Julian on the job. So we went down, met a well a man who's won a BAFTA since Martin Turner, who was the the lead um, director producer at then Eurosport, and um, the rest is as it is. Had a job ever since, really. So at thirty one. I started to take it a bit more seriously and I've been doing broadcasting now longer than I was previously alive. So it's um it's quite a it's quite a feat really. So I'm despite the fact I'm a little bit sad to have, have left BT and, and, and the like, it's um I've certainly had plenty of a plenty of a career in it and I'm I appreciate everybody that's helped me throughout that. But you look around you now and there's a lot of <laughs> I'm looking straight at Gary at the moment because there are so many young people that are educated dedicated to their sport that have, have come up with it as a career whereas for me it wasn't a career it was a laugh you know i it was free tea and sandwiches it literally was that yeah and then when i was getting paid we got paid ludicrous amounts of money ludicrous amounts of money i can't tell you how much money i got paid in the early days for, for commentary because there was no one else that could do it you know there were very few people that, that were able to to broadcast and put together you know, some would say I've never been able to put together a decent <laughs> sentence, but but it's usually been amusing for some people. And and the the commentary, if nothing else, my commentary is passionate and as knowledgeable as I can make it. Um, and I think that was the key back in the day. But since then, now I look around me, and you know, you've you've got so many good young, you know, broadcasters, journalists snapping at your heels. It's their time. It's their, their it's their turn. Some aren't that good. Some are pretty good you know it's uh, you, you and you'll be seeing it in car racing i mean there are some car race commentators you think why are you still there and the same thing with bike commentators yeah. i mean when i listen to some of the bike commentary and i think are you actually seeing the same bloody pictures as i'm looking at i mean what's going on here and i'm supposed to be long in the tooth and yet there are some people that are commentating and you think and there are the commentators that like to be ever so smart you know like um i I'm going to make this point and it doesn't matter what action's going on in front of me. I am going to yeah, make this point because yeah. it makes me look smart. And you think they're kind of not really. I think what's happened in broadcasting is, is that the broadcaster, the presenter, the commentator has almost become as important to themselves as the actual racing. They have become the stars and I've never agreed with that. You know, the one thing I've always thought of when I, when I went into commentary was it's not, about me despite the fact i've got an ego and i'm reasonably big-headed anyway but I, the fact is is that it is about the people that are in front of you 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 are there to bring those people on to to get the best from them. when you do an interview it's not about you being smart it's about you even if you know the answer you've got to ask the question you've got to ask it for the other person to answer and it, it it's i think it's drifting a bit away from that which i find annoying i think that the, the, the presenter isn't the star the, the stars are the people out on the track. They're the sportsmen. They're the people putting it on the line. They're the people that we should be hearing from. And I suppose Dorna and the likes also have a, a role to play here that they perhaps don't play in their constitution. It should be that they should make those people do those questions at the end of the day. You know, people should have access. The fans, the people paying large amounts of money nowadays for access to our sport should be hearing from you know, rather than just one standard question, you should be able to interview somebody properly. Mm. You know, even if even if you have to swap it about during the course of the year, because obviously, you know, otherwise you can't have ten different countries asking the guy the same question. It would drive everybody bloody mad. But 
Um, there should be a situation where more in-depth stuff should be available. Whereas I feel, Pete, that <laughs> you haven't had a word to talk here for a while. Um, <laughs> I, I just I just feel that the that, journos that don't get the access that they should get. And, and I feel that that's getting worse from a written word point of view. Um, I think television has really taken over now. Mm. And I used to appreciate those those magazine you know those those pointed magazine articles where they used to really get under the skin of things. I miss that. Yeah, I mean you're right, Keith. It's 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 become there's clear priority order, isn't there? That the TV is is the most important thing at the moment for the sport. I mean that that brings in the money, and you've got it. You need the money, or you don't have the sport. And then you have various levels of media, don't you? That you know you're trying to accommodate maybe general news you're trying to accommodate specialist media you've got print you've got digital which is seen as different from print you know you've got radio you've got all of these nationalities that all all want a piece of things but it seems like in order for everyone to get their piece of everything you lack you don't get the depth because as you say you you just get the rider answering and this is what frustrates the riders isn't it they get the same question a million times because everyone needs that that same question answered to their camera person or their 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 media person rather than just just taking that answer for everybody if you like and then and then having your own sort of in-depth time with, with a rider which would maybe get a bit more across especially now with a closed paddock and things like that you know you you can see that the the, the rumor side of things that you you know you've been talking about also in previous podcasts of you know, seeing people in the paddock doing, having discussions and things like that. You know, we've got a closed paddock now. All of that is kind of gone. And so the, 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 the talking points become more limited, don't they? It becomes, we're lucky with MotoGP, there's a lot of track action. But, you know, that whole side of things, of, as you say, oh, I was having breakfast with, with so-and-so and they, they, I heard this or that, or you go, and, you, know, you go and investigate it, look into it. That's kind of been lost a bit. And I think it, it all adds to the, the flavor of the sport. I I, th- I couldn't agree more. Actually, I think I, I think it's even worse in in the motorcycle world. Just from what I've seen, actually, the, you know, the differentiation between the, the the TV and the written journalism, especially with this closed paddock as well. But uh, it, it is fascinating to see how you know how far it's coming. What's how much it's changed in the last year with with the pandemic as well. Um, Keith, a final question for you: What is one thing you would change about the current? moto gp championship that we're seeing today i'd have more bikes wild cards is my i think that the teams should be able to bring a proper test bike um you know wild cards is important i think that uh it adds a dynamic dynamic a flavor to the grid that gives you that extra little bit of unknown i think that we we kind of Mind you, there's a lot of unknown in MotoGP now. It's not like you can predict who can be the winner every time. You just can't. It's impossible. Mm. You only got to look at our predictions, and we're nowhere near it. <laughs> you know, it's uh, or is that uh, we're just useless? <laughs> but the fact is, is that I, I I always enjoyed wild card situation. I think that that is, and I think as well. I, you know, personally, I'm not sure that I would have allowed eight Ducatis. You know, I'd have been in a situation where you know there should have been a couple more Suzukis on the grid, or or, or something along those lines. It's an imbalance, I think, mm. that, that that we can avoid. I think that, that you know, if, if Ducati do actually manage to crack the nut that they haven't been able to crack for so long, even though they slung more money than probably just about anybody else at it, um, Ducati still are not winning like they should be, considering. Uh, will will that change next year? Well, you know, with 2022 being freed up again on, on uh, you know, conce- not concessions, but on development, um, then we'll be back 
we'll be back at the start again. And you can be fairly sure that, um, well, I, I can't imagine what two years worth of secret development is going to bring us in 2022. I think we're in for an incredible year. But if I was going to change anything personally, wildcards. I love wildcards on unrestricted bikes so they can bring, you know, whether it's they don't score points, that's that's another matter altogether. Um, whether it's a non-point scoring wildcard system where they can bring any kind of development bike they want to bring from that manufacturer so they can test it and do what they like with it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that would just be... Can you imagine that? You know, something turns up all painted in black or something or whatever it is. <laughs> It'd be like the Stig. <laughs> Suddenly turns up on a motorbike that no one recognises and no one knows anything about and the bloody thing blitzes everybody in a straight line. I'd love it. Um <laughs> It ain't going to happen because it's expensive. And that's the, the, I think the cost issues are the major problem. And unfortunately, and this is where it all comes back down to earth, is that we, have just re we are recovering from a pandemic, hopefully, in 2022. All these factories have taken it on the nose. Everybody is in a poor, poor condition, financially, business-wise and the like, coming into 2022. So Dorna must have spent millions of their own pounds um, or pesetas or euros as it obviously is now but you know the spanish have, have really to rescue our sport to keep our sport going dorna you know give them a big clap they should be applauded for what they've done and luckily they were financially solvent enough to be able to do that otherwise we wouldn't even have a sport in 2022 yeah i think you uh you put it very well there well look I think we are now pretty much at maximum capacity, maximum time. Keith, thank you for all that. It's been an absolute pleasure to sit in here about about your, your career today. I'm sure there's a lot that we didn't quite go into detail, as much detail as we could have done, but we will pick those up in future shows, I'm sure, because it's a long season still ahead of us as well and uh, plenty more podcasts to go. But thank you, Keith. Pete, as well, thank you as ever for being alongside me. We shall return with you once again next week for more MotoGP chat. You can keep up to date with everything uh, MotoGP related on Crash.net. Of course, all the latest news and articles, features as well. Uh, and if you want to get in touch, send your questions to Crash MotoGP on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and we'll select a few to ask to the guys on the show. Uh, but for now, we shall see you here uh, next week. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review wherever you watch us, and we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.